Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. How's it going, Nizar? I'm good, but I don't have an al tarif in my name. It's Nizar Hassan. Oh, sorry. Sorry. One last I'm, time. My, my <laughs> apologies. You would think after, you know, like a couple of years of doing this, <laughs> that I would be able to say your name correctly. Obviously not. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, we we were off last week, so we, we, we've got a lot of stuff to cover. But before we get to the news, I just want to say, like, this episode is, is going to be... Uh, we're, we're going to try to do something kind of big with this episode. We're, we're going to attempt to explain the financial slash economic slash monetary slash fiscal slash whatever other terms crisis uh, that Lebanon appears to be in right now. Uh, and, and we're going to try to sort of break it down in terms that are understandable uh, and, and sort of put everything into context, what's going on with like gas station strikes and the price of the lira and all that stuff, sort of explain what's going on. Uh, hopefully we're going to be successful in doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's quite risky. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but, but first, of course, we have, we have to get to the news. And and with this, something really big happened. That was m- maybe not the most political of stories, but like it was a huge story. So we have to talk about it. Uh, the, the New York Times published this piece uh, a couple weeks back uh, <laughs> about uh, the prime minister, Saad Hariri, about how back in 2013 and 2014, when he wasn't prime minister, he made enormous payments to the South African model, uh, it, it, it summed up to something like $16 million. He gave this uh, much younger woman um, from his own, I guess, personal money. And and this was, this, this is huge. $16 million is just a lot of money, right? The, the, the report, uh, like I said, it came out from the New York Times. It was based on court documents uh, that came out because of a tax inquiry, because basically the South African authorities said, hey, this is a huge amount of money. We don't believe it's just a personal gift, uh, which the model was claiming it was just a personal gift uh, that she had a relationship with uh, Hariri and that he just gave her this money. Yeah, she said he was an Arab admirer. That's how she described the person who gave her this much money. Uh, yeah, and, and and just up front, we should say, you know, like there there is no indication that, you know, anything illegal or wrong or, or anything like that happened. Uh, it, it's just, you know, one of those stories that when a man of this amount of power gives a model this amount of money, it really does raise a lot of eyebrows. And and some people have cited this huge amount of money as evidence of some nefarious activity, you know, like it was maybe some business deal that Hariri had been conducting with the model or with her father or something like that. And and, and indeed, the this, this size is really big. That That's why we probably know about it, the size is what attacked the tax authorities, right? Uh, but there's really no evidence of some sort of like nefarious business dealings or anything like that. It's just the size that, that that's why people are saying that. But yeah, this was the talk of the town for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first off, just it's one of those salacious stories, right? Uh, it's that he is the prime minister. He is the uh, like de facto leader of the Sunni community here in Lebanon. But there's also a second reason that this also got a, a lot of coverage. And that is that Hariri's been having pretty serious financial issues. I mean, he's still a hundreds of millions heir. Uh, but he, he's not receiving money reportedly. Uh, he's not receiving money from Saudi Arabia, uh, like he used to, like his father used to. 
His um, major company, Saudi Oger, collapsed and closed. Right, right. And the Saudi authorities reportedly owe billions of dollars to him, to his company. Um, and, and so th- there's a lot of, he, he has a lot of financial problems right now, according to a lot of reports. Uh, and, and, and this is, sort of plays out on the local scene as well, because you see a certain uh, businesses that are affiliated with Hurry, you know, going under. We have uh, Future TV and Mustafa uh, newspaper b- both shut down after months of not paying workers' salaries and everything. And another Hurry businesses uh, have also been known to have some funding issues recently. And so when you have this story coming out that he, you know, in, in recent years has paid $16 million to somebody, but yet he's not, he's delaying payments to his workers and stuff like that at, at his companies, uh, that it's not a good look. Um, he, he did sort of implicitly respond to this. He called it sort of a campaign against him. You know, like, I'm not going to let this campaign against me get in, get in the way of my work. But this is kind of ridiculous that, you know, there, there's no way that the New York Times has it in for Hariri. You know, I, I find that r- really hard to believe. I, I don't think that they care that much, uh, uh, to be brutally honest. And at worst, I think, you know, somebody tipped the Times off to the fact that, you know, this was going down and then they wrote about it. Um, but but that's not really, in my mind, a legitimate criticism, because if we only let reporters put on tips from political allies or something that you're never going to get a tip. Of yeah. course, the tip is going to come from somebody who's, you know, digging up dirt on a political opponent or something. And if you, if you say you can't report on that, then you're saying you basically can't report on politics. Yeah, but to be clear, that's how every politician in Lebanon deals with any scandal, whatever it is. They always say, like, it's a conspiracy against me, it's a campaign against me and against my people and my followers. So this is how they kind of consolidate, like, uh, loyalty within among their ranks by just, like, framing it in this way. This is very, very typical, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of times, you know, followers will, will go along with it, r- rightly or wrongly. Uh, in other news, another really important thing that uh, happened this week that has, I think, maybe a, a little less salacious, right, but uh, still very important. The financial prosecutor, Ali Ibrahim, uh, said he wanted to talk to the former ministers of telecoms. Uh, and so he, he wanted to talk to uh, Boutrous Harab, who was telecoms minister under Tamem Salem, his successor, Jamal Jarrah, and his successor, the current telecoms minister, Mohamed Shu'er. Well, the latter two said, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, Jarrah claimed that improper procedures had been done, uh, and this was an illegal process. Uh, Shu'er later said that Ali Ibrahim could come visit him instead of the other way around. I'm not entirely sure what the difference is. Um, but but all of this seems to come as there's, there's a lot of questions swirling right now about the telecom sector, about what exactly is going on there, especially financially. And in addition to Ali Ibrahim looking into this stuff, we have a parliamentary committee, the Media and Telecommunications Committee, headed by uh, Hezbollah MP Hassan al-Hajj Hassan, also looking into this stuff. So this is one of those things that first off, we're going to keep seeing in the future. This is there's there's a whole lot more to come on this story, and also because this is uh, one of those things that you're, we're going to see politics get into this, right? So we have two future ministers, uh, future movement ministers, um, and they can sort of claim, oh, this is politics being played. This is Hezbollah coming after us. Yeah, but still, like the, symbolically, the the decision by Jarrah and Sha'er to announce that they're not going to see the financial prosecutor, I think, is it's quite arrogant and like politically, like very damaging for them uh, because it's just, I mean, they're not being. It's just a really anything. incredible precedent. Like that, yeah. it's, it's insane. Yeah, you just ignore it and tell him, oh, you can come instead, as if it's a visit, you know, 
Uh, and you can come and bring chocolates. No, it's a, it's a serious thing. It's a judicial procedure and you have to uh, comply with it. So it's more more of this behavior by politicians that kind of uh, degrades the state and undermines the, the seriousness of the institutions of the state and the, the most important one for, for our continuity or the continuity of the system, which is the judiciary being independent and effective. Um, we've also seen a lot of attacks on the press recently. The uh, Nidal al-Watan, the Lebanon's newest newspaper, I, th- I think we talked about this when this happened. Uh, about a month ago, they published a headline that said something to the effect of, Welcome to the Republic of Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, right? Well, they got charged in court for insulting the president. I'm not entirely sure how, but that is the charge. Anyway, so this past week, there was an actual hearing in court. The editors of the newspaper are being represented by Boutros Harab, back in the news quite a bit. Uh, by, by, by the way, Boutros Harab is not just like the former telecoms minister. He served as minister two other times. He's this longtime MP. He, he's been, he was an MP from 1972 until 2018. So had he won re-election, he would have been an MP for like 50 years. He is an institution, right? Like, yeah, he's sort of like he has a, a big legal office, legal company, and he's really major in Batroun, where he's from. Um, so there's a lot of like major following base for him is is quite an important figure he was very also significant in the march 14 time around 2005 against the syrian regime etc exactly and it's really interesting to see who came out in defense of the newspaper right so he's he's their counsel right he's their he's their legal counsel uh but then also at the hearing we saw a lot of march 14th types especially a lot of lf types uh, lebanese forces people showed up politicians meshidiak jojo ace and so it, it, it's it's interesting to just look at this from a purely political point of view. You basically have LF on March 14th with the editors of the newspaper against people who say they're defending the honor of the president while the president is the founder of the FPM. And so you, you basically have this, oh, it, is, is this just some bullshit intra-Christian LF versus FPM thing? It kind of looks that way. Yeah, but it's also a lot of people who sub- who are uh, expressing solidarity with Nida Al-Watan have no interest in its editorial line or whatever, it's political bias. They're just saying like, really stop this attack on the press. It's just, uh, it's it's getting too much. It's getting too far. You can't punish a newspaper for writing such a simple headline as, you know, welcome to the Republic of Khamenei. If we call it welcome to the Republic of Trash because there's a garbage crisis, is that also insulting the president? You know, you can take it anywhere. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. And and speaking of attacks on journalism and journalists, uh, we also had an issue regarding the the availability of dollars in the country. A, a journalist uh, by the name of Amr Shibani was uh, questioned and he had to delete a tweet. So b- basically, he tried to go and withdraw $600 from SGBL, which is one of the largest banks in the country. It's partly owned by Société Générale, the, the gigantic French bank, and uh, but but majority owned by Antoine Sahnawi and his relatives. So the, the journalist went to SGBL. He couldn't withdraw six. He, he said he couldn't withdraw $600, not even from the counter, despite having a dollar account uh, there at SGBL. He said afterwards, uh, after he posted this tweet, an SGBL attorney called him up and asked him to take it down. He refused. And then he was called into the ISF's Cyber Crimes Bureau for questioning. And there he agreed to, to finally delete the tweet uh, while he was being questioned. I mean, this this is really sort of a, a, a bizarre story. Uh, it's sort of like a, a self-own for SGBL, I think. 
as my colleague uh, Tamor Asari pointed out on Twitter, friend of the show, Tamor, you know, this was something with something like three retweets and three likes, and SGBL managed to make it into this national story, you know, yeah. <laughs> and 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 it's doubly bad for somebody like Antun Sahnawi, who has really tried to like build up this image, cultivate this image of himself as this patron of the arts, uh, defender of free expression, all this stuff. I mean, he's one of the uh, producers of The Insults, uh, the movie, uh, 2017 movie that was nominated for an Academy Award. You know, like mm. like he he's making a name for himself in the media. I, I imagine he must have had like some stern words for his legal team yeah. <laughs> at SGBL after this, because, it, yeah, it looks really bad for him. And and also this week, we had another issue with a publication, uh, this time a foreign publication. Uh, a group of lawyers filed a legal complaint against The Economist, a British magazine. The article at issue uh, was called Broken Beirut, a long-feared currency crisis has begun to bite in Lebanon. The, the lawyers noticed said that the article in question had damaged the reputation and financial status of the Lebanese state and insulted the Lebanese flag and cedar tree because there was this accompanying graphic with it that showed like the cedar tree falling off the flag, like as though like things are starting to fall apart. Right. Yeah. That was the implication. Yeah. And so, I mean, who knows whether this will actually go anywhere or not. But again, just like, has no one heard of the Streisand effect? Like, I'm sure the people at The Economist thought that this was like great for them. You know, any time that you have news like this, that you're getting suppressed or, or somebody is complaining about your publication. That's just that gets your name out there even more. Yeah. That gets the article in question out there even more. More people probably read this because... These lawyers complained. Everyone was sharing it. I mean, I received it on like 25 WhatsApp groups. People were translating it to Arabic, like all of sorts of shit that doesn't usually happen with economist articles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like nobody's ever heard of the Streisand effect. It's yeah. amazing. So finally this week, we had a big deal. Uh, Hariri went to the UAE uh, for this big investment conference. And, and we actually saw something pretty big happen here. Uh, and that was the lifting of the travel ban. Uh, that the UAE has had on travel to Lebanon. The UAE has, since 2016 has said, if you're a UAE citizen, you are not supposed to go to Lebanon. And they lifted it finally. And so hopefully we will start seeing more Emiratis come here. Uh, of, of course, the, the hope of a lot of people is that they will come here and spend lots of money. Whether that will actually happen or not is another question. Uh, but it, but I mean, it's uh, it's a positive sign. It's, it's something that is in the right direction. It's a good it's a good outcome from this trip. Another outcome that I've, I've, I'm a little bit more dubious on is that the UAE uh, has apparently promised support for Lebanon. This is according to Hariri. Uh, it was, it's very vague, though. So a, a reporter asked him, you know, what form this would be in. Uh, and, and Hariri basically said, well, all options are open. Like he he doesn't even know, you know, there, were, there was no agreement whether it would be like just a direct deposit at the central bank or buying euro bonds or some other sort of investment, which were like all very different, very different possibilities. So uh, clearly to me, there wasn't a dollar value. There wasn't a time frame. There wasn't uh, any sort of specificity on, you know, what it would be. And to me, it just sounds like another one of these very vague promises that may or may not actually result in anything at the end of the day. Which is really sort of unfortunate because we we do desperately need 
money, right? We need dollars specifically to come in from outside. This is one of the things that we're going to talk about more generally in a minute, but like th this is having some specific consequences. Just a shortage of dollars is having like real on the ground consequences for people, everyday Lebanese people right now. Yeah, the shortage of dollars has been maybe the, the most important thing on the news indirectly for the last few weeks, right? We had high demands for dollars compared to Lira and, you know, investors are just not encouraged to come here and in general there's low confidence in the economy and the state of the economy we've been talking about this for a year now how how bad the economy is doing overall so this high demand for dollars compared to the lira meant that the lira was devaluated in the market so when you went to an exchange shop instead of 1507 or 1515 it would be 1600 up to 1620 so this devaluation of the lira was accompanied by uh, restrictions from banks on withdrawing dollars because when this happened everyone was like okay i need to uh, change all my money from lira to dollars banks were saying no it's not gonna happen i want to take my dollars and uh, to to protect them from being seized or whatever all of these things that people do in times of crisis and the, the devaluation was specifically bad for importers because importers have to pay in dollars because they're buying from foreign companies foreign suppliers of goods and they get paid in lira because they're selling to local companies. And when the lira devaluates, they lose money. So this this difference between 1620 and 1500 whatever 5 or 15 or 7 is something like 5%. This is a real cost for them. So they cannot accept to go and exchange rates in the market. Uh, so they're taking money from these local companies and then exchanging them in the market for these high rates and then buying the, the products uh, with dollars. They said, okay, we're going to stop accepting lira. And this was a big problem for who? For the, these companies buying things from them, right? The gas stations, for example, if we take the fuel sector, importers would be the importers of fuel and then the gas stations would be these local companies buying from them. And these gas stations were saying, okay, if you're not accepting lira, but all our customers, the, everyone who's filling their their cars and gas, they're paying with lira. Then we have to go to the market and sell our lira for these high prices. That's not going to work for us. For us, we're going to close. We're going to go on strike. And this is why we had two strikes or mini strikes for the oh, gas. Three now. Three now, yeah. yeah. So both gas stations and importers, but also importers of other and other sectors, are worried and, and, and scared and also outraged about the current situation. So people were panicking, like people going and buying things and, and, and filling their gas, their cars every day just in case something happens, etc. Uh, the central government had to intervene. And how it intervened is by saying, okay, for three sectors in the economy, which are the most important ones for the continuity of the country, fuel and medicine and wheat, we will maintain an exchange rate that does not affect the importers of these goods. So that even if the exchange rate in the market is higher, so when you want to exchange your dollars as a, as a normal individual, you would get a higher price. But for these sectors, for the importers in these sectors, they would get the, the fixed price, the pegged price, which has been there since 1997. So how this happens is that uh, BDL issues a decision and the decision is communicated through a circular. So we refer to the decision by referring to the circular. And this circular uh, said that BDL will kind of play the role for of this currency, currency exchange shop, 
kind of for these three sectors, you know, through commercial banks, not directly between BDL and uh, the importers, through commercial banks and through something, an instrument called letters of credit or documentary credits without going into details. It's just a, a way in which usually people buying internationally, buying goods from foreign suppliers, they have the banks guarantee this payment that we will, they will make for these uh, suppliers. And what usually happens is that when the banks get the document that the goods have been shipped and before they are um, basically handed to the buyer, the money is sent from the bank to the other bank or to the other company, foreign company. So what the central bank said is through this this instrument, importers can like open these accounts in, in the banks and then the banks can come to the central bank and exchange this money for dollars. This way, we will guarantee that we will always give you the same rate. So you will not be affected by whatever panic is happening in the private sector where people are buying more dollars than they should be and the rate is going higher. So the strikes this week, this week are related to this circular, this decision by the central bank and how it would, did not go smooth in terms of implementation. First of all, because it requires banks to pay 15% of the total amount um, or to deposit 15% of the total amount of these accounts at BDL in dollars. And then banks are asking importers to do the same. So, and and these people, ha- all of these people have problems with dollars, like with the, with, the, with the availability of dollars today. Second, because there's a commission that the central bank is making from this process, it's 0.5%, and no one wants to pay it. The banks or the importers, and the importers both are saying, like, it's not our responsibility to pay it. So probably they will add it to the pr- consumer prices in the end. And then the third one is that, uh, the third problem is that the medicine and wheat sectors have a problem with this system because they usually pay in advance before they get their goods rather than after they are already shipped, which is the case for uh, fuel, for the fuel sectors or and other sectors. So they're saying this whole system with the letter of credits doesn't work for us. Anyway, with, with this, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but we are anticipating a crisis with medicine availability next week. People have been buying bread in, in crazy amounts in the last few days because maybe it's uh, something like uh, like a shortage of wheat, of, of flour will happen. Yeah, so we're recording this as of Saturday night. So the last that I have heard before we turned off our phones and came into the recording booth was that the wheat uh, importers were still planning on going on strike as of Monday. And the fuel strike, which was announced on Friday, uh, that's been taken care of. A- apparently, they met with Saad Hariri and everything is back to normal. Uh, gas stations are back open as of now. But there, there's no clarity on what the actual fix has been uh, from that or, or where things are going. So if, right now, we, we're you know, hopefully things will just be resolved by the time you're listening to this on Monday. Uh, but if not, then th- there's just this high degree of uncertainty of what potentially could happen next week. And one thing that is interesting about this, about uh, the import sector in Lebanon, the trade sector, is that there's a lot of concentration in terms of who owns the major import companies. Like, for example, with the fuel sector, uh, the, it's concentrated, although many companies involved in like importing, uh, the vast majority of it is done by by very few companies, four or five companies, and and this they're known as they're called usually cartels or whatever like monopolies. 
and this matters you know they can take actions in ways that are much more coordinated than usual they have much more power than if they were just freely like private actors just acting out of you know without coordination and in a free market kind of situation so this is always something to consider when we're when thinking about the dynamics of power in, in, in these situations yeah it seems like there are some people who are saying just like oh my god the government needs to fix this Riyadh Suleyman needs to fix this right now give the companies you know the the rate that you guarantee give them 1507 to the dollar and let this be done with and then there's sort of the other side that's saying oh no 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 these companies shouldn't be getting special treatment we need to break up the cartels and that's going to fix the problem yeah and some of them some people are saying like but why doesn't the government itself engage in the import of some of these things if they are so right. important especially in fuel which is very very like which is doable and, and not that difficult to do and we have the facilities for it etc but anyway this whole thing is just really one aspect of a much bigger economic crisis right yeah i, I mean it's variously described as an economic crisis or a financial crisis or a monetary crisis or there there's a lot of different adjectives uh used to describe it and really though it is it, it it's all of these right uh it, it it's all of these things are sort of in crisis right now and they're all related they all affect each other and and so what we want to do is sort of like back up and figure out you know sort of walk through what exactly is going on here what what was lebanon's economic model why did it fail and and how did this play out into these very you know this multifaceted crisis that we're facing right now yeah i think it's important to start basically after the end of the civil war and the economic model economic development model that was adopted which is basically let's invest in in basic infrastructure and rebuild downtown beirut and make beirut uh, the regional capital of finance and trade and banking and tourism again this was the vision and open the markets for international trades it's it's basically like kind of a financial capitalism based you know uh, economy uh, that is liberalized in terms of trade that is based on on minimal state investment and in anything except infrastructure so it's it's part of this neoliberal vision of of development that Rafi Hariri was bringing it didn't involve like serious industrial policy in in productive sectors or uh, like which which are the sectors that are usually allow any country to produce and export things that will therefore bring in dollars to the economy so when we talk about the shortage of dollars we should always think about how money is going in and out how dollars are going in and out because yeah, where do the dollars usually come from right exactly because we really every country really needs dollars if it wants to engage in international trade that's you, you have to have foreign currency if you have only your local currency then how you can you buy foreign goods right so this is why the presence of dollars is important generally instead instead of like being coming in in return for exported goods dollars were coming in in two forms most important importantly as remittances remittances were at some point a quarter of the gdp of lebanon it's really Ooh. huge yeah it's really huge yeah. it was like one of the it was in the top 3 i think countries uh, back in 2004 when this was the case 26.6% of the gdp but in general it has had a very exaggerated uh, role in in funding the lebanese economy the other thing is a development assistance overseas development assistance which assistance which is basically countries and organizations giving us money uh, either the world bank or foreign countries which happened in paris 1 and paris 2 and paris 3 the conferences and then now in cedar which is paris 4 this is what it's maybe, about maybe yeah yeah, if the money comes in. But 
this money coming in, this inflow of money was so important that we built this whole economic model where basically we get these remittances and finance our consumption as, fa- as Lebanese families and as, a, as an economy in general, as a society of products that are imported for cheap tariffs because the tariffs on, you know, for importing things were were lowered and there was no protection of local products. So the cheap products coming from outside for cheaper to buy than Lebanese products for Lebanese consumers. And this whole thing was financed by remittances. So to keep the money in, the government needed to ensure that the local currency was stable because otherwise people would put their money, send their money elsewhere unless, you know, it's just urgent family needs, but they would not come put their money in, in their savings in Lebanon. And this is, was the important thing, the millions and tens of millions of dollars that people, rich people and, and um, middle upper class people would, would send to Lebanon in terms of savings. So the lira was fixed um, in terms of $1 to 1500 around 1500 which is basically 1500 uh, 7.5. Yeah, that's it, the target rate, yeah. That target rate, but it goes up and down and then a small margin. And the way that this peg is maintained, this fixed rate, is by controlling the amount of lira in the economy and dollars in the economy to balance off the the change in supply and demand. Because supply and demand changes prices. So if you want to maintain the price of a lira for a dollar, you have to manipulate the supply and demand to a certain extent. So to do this, the bank needs, the central bank needed a huge, you know, pile of dollars what is called the foreign currency reserve. Yeah, not a literal pile. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but basically it needed to possess a, a huge like amount of dollars that allows people to be to have confidence in the economy so that if they are worried about the lira devaluating and they them losing their savings, the bank would be no no, we have a lot of reserves so we can we can manipulate as we said uh, like the supply and demand of currencies and maintain your peg. So this the foreign reserve, foreign currency reserve is the most important kind of thing the pillar of this whole system working and as long as it's okay the peg is reliable as long as money coming in in great amount then the peg is reliable and people have confidence but in order to 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 maintain and increase its foreign currency reserves uh, the central bank needed to maintain like this confidence through the peg uh, but also offer incentives for people to bring in their dollars and exchange them to lira uh, and open accounts, open their saving accounts and deposit accounts in Lira and Lebanon. So that Lira is, uh, there's more demand for Lira, you know, the Lira is taking out of uh, of the market so that it balances off the price and therefore the peg is maintained and the foreign currency reserve is, is increasing. Um, yeah, and if you're sending money back, if you're sending dollars back, but you know, like the exchange rate has, you know, it's stable, it's fine, you don't have a problem switching over to Lira, especially if that those Lira accounts, that Lira savings account is going to give you maybe a couple extra points of interest, right? Yeah, exactly. And when you talk about high, as high interest as we're talking today, as we're seeing today, like 15%, that's double your money in five years. If you put $1 million, you get $2 million in five years. That's insane. That's better than any other investment you can make. Like really, what's, what's about, if you open, if you have $10 million and you open a factory, you won't make twenty $20 million in five years. You right, know, right, right. Or $10 million in five years. Although the, the 15%, that's just a recent thing. Uh, historically, though, the, you just made more money on your lira than you would on your dollar deposits. And that would, you know, it was a significant amount. Yeah. So it, although it was ha- it had a good effect for bringing money in, in terms of people bringing their money and opening deposit accounts here and sending remittances, it had a bad effect on the private sector because when the interest rates are high, therefore, if you want to borrow for investment, it's high. And as we said, therefore, if you want to invest, sometimes it's just better to have a very, very low risk investment, which is 
just putting your money and freezing them in the bank with the only risk being a horrible financial situation and collapse versus like starting a business with all kinds of risk and all kinds of problems with infrastructure, etc. That, that are serious obstacles facing your, your accumulation of capital. So it's much better. So it's kind of, that's why it's bad. It has a crowding out effect on the private sector. So that's sort of uh, what our economic model was. We, we had this huge sort of like dollar deficit as far as, because we were so many dollars were just exiting the country, right, to buy imports. But then that deficit was being filled by incoming dollars from like remittances and stuff like that. That was that was that was the basic gist of it. And then there were certain other things with the economic model that like the peg that just sort of like kept everything together. So that actually means that a lot of things were wrong with the economic model. Like you, you talked about productive sectors and like industrial policy. There was no real industrial policy, right? The, the size of manufacturing relative to GDP was cut in half. Yeah, from the 90s till 2010, it was basically half of what it is. Which, which is insane. And, and you, you have this, so you have this trade balance as well that, that had this huge uh, shortage of dollars in the economy that had to get filled from a, a like totally different source. Uh, we, we also had the problem of government deficits. Um, the economic model failed to create a, a kind of system that would allow for economic growth and the development of a good tax base. And so the government had to keep on relying on borrowing instead of development of its tax base because the, the economy didn't grow to, to an extent that it could really switch over to that. Exactly. And, and, and like this borrowing happened at really high interest rates uh, during the reconstruction times and after. And today it's happening at very high interest rates. So interest rates have kept accumulating and accumulating and becoming virtually all of what we owe in terms of public debt today. And, you know, this high public debt is basically means that uh, the government has to be, sp- to, be, to be spending a huge amount of money out of, his, of its revenues or in addition to this uh, to these revenues in terms of just spending on public debt service every year. So we had bigger and bigger deficits. And that also created another problem because the banks were very happy to have this very uh, stable source of income, right? They could invest in government debt. It was, you know safe. They were going to get their money back. It was a pretty good interest. And so that drained money away from, well, if they're putting that money with the government, they're not putting it with the private sector, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would also just note that another problem with this with this model was if you rigidly tie your currency to a vastly different <laughs> economy's currency, mm. that, that just sets up a lot of risk for things getting out of, out of whack. You know, you, you, you sort of tie your hands as far as other sort of monetary policy uh, instruments that you might use. You, you, you don't have nearly as much freedom if you decide to peg, uh, especially when it's a, a country that's a really long ways away that you don't do the majority of your trading with. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we're just, you know, the the entire model rests on this reliance on this perhaps somewhat volatile source of income, source of dollars, remittances. And so there were all of these different problems. I I think that the economic model had, you know, this lack of industrial policy, the the failure to create a good tax base for the government, uh, rigidly tying your currency to another currency, and, and then finally, this reliance on remittances, like all of these things were not ideal things. Uh, They were all, in my opinion, they were all contributing factors to uh, the problems that we have today. 
but one of them usually gets singled out as the reason for everything that we're seeing today. And that, that's what's changed, right? What changed in 2010? We saw a huge drop off in uh, the amount of dollars flowing into the country. Yeah, I think it's actually 2008 when like the the amount of remittances started declining so dramatically. I mean, from 2008 we had when we had 24% of the GDP in 2010 we had 17.9% of GDP. Uh, and then it doesn't this is not the, um, the 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 of course it's not the absolute amount. So uh, it might be related to the growth of the Lebanese economy. However, unfortunately, that's also not the case. So uh, we had this steady decline. It was uh, much more, much more uh, moderate afterwards until uh, until today, when it's as we're saying around twelve percent of the GDP. And this means the big problem, which is lower foreign currency reserve at the central bank, which is keeping this whole thing together. Right, because we've kept importing at the same rate, and so dollars keep flowing out at the same rate, but the dollars aren't coming in to replace them. So yeah, like, and things, things kept running for a few years, right? Uh, and, but then uh, things started to get a little bit hairier. And we saw BDL started to implement some certain financial engineering measures meant basically to draw dollars in to shore up their foreign currency reserves, stuff like that. But these BDL policies, they sort of had these side effects that weren't great. Um, and and this, uh, it, this became a lot more apparent uh, as time went on. It ended up actually sucking dollars out of the economy because when BDL is so desperate to uh, grab dollars that it's going to offer a really, really high rate on those dollars, uh, then banks... Where, where, where are you going to put your money? You're going to put your money in a safe place where you can get a, a great return, right? Mm -hmm. And that was BDL. And so all of a sudden, we see just like this this giant Hoover vacuum of dollars, uh, sucking dollars out of the economy, out of productive sectors, so that, so that BDL can maintain the peg, so it can maintain its foreign currency reserves, right? And, and, and this, it's not only sucking it out of the, the private sector, it's also sucking it out of the public sector as well. And so we, we basically have three things happening simultaneously. The government can't attract enough money to pay its bills because banks usually, who, who are the ones who finance uh, the majority of government debt, they're parking their money, both dollars and lira, uh, at the central bank, largely. The private sector, number two, is also getting strangled by this lack of liquidity. And then, uh, number three, nobody can seem to really uh, get dollars, uh, or at least not as much as they uh, they want, uh, with banks, uh, in some cases, refusing to convert. So importers can't get the dollars to buy the goods that they need from overseas, just what we were talking about earlier. Um, and then regular people also having trouble getting dollars. And so yeah. this has follow-on consequences. So, you know, businesses that get turned away by banks, they've just flooded to exchange houses with a demand for dollars. And these exchange houses are not used to uh, servicing this kind of demand. They don't have the dollars mm -hmm. to do this. And so this is why the the exchange rate has changed at exchange houses because certain exchange houses have realized, oh, I can charge higher because people are desperate for dollars and there's a scarcity of them. So I can charge them a little bit more. And so some exchange houses started charging a higher rate than 1515. And then the public got spooked by this. There was a parallel exchange rate and the public saw this. This got out into the press, of course, because it will uh, and onto Facebook and, and uh, social media and everything. And then the public also started having their own difficulties withdrawing dollars, exchanging money, stuff like that at banks. 
And I mean, if this starts happening, the natural result is people get spooked and they start to pull their money out in dollars and hide it under under their mattress or try to send it overseas. You know, that's that is a logical response and that it seems as though that is what has happened in uh, in large part here. Yeah. And if this happens, it's a vicious cycle of people selling the lira, selling the lira, whatever it costs, which means that uh, when the demand for lira is lower, then the price will be lower. So then they will be and people around them will be harmed by the same loop, by the same cycle that's happening. And it's a spiral downwards, right? It's it's just it can it can go on and on until a certain point where it doesn't make sense anymore because people get their salaries in lira and they will spend them. Most of pe- most people get their salaries you know, and they will spend them in the local market. So it will, even if this happens, it will stabilize at some point. But this is a very scary process because people will lose a lot of their purchasing power because we rely so much on imported items. And this is why the devaluation is such a crazy thing. Like for, apart from it's how it harms importers, as we talked about, it also harms us because if we want to travel, if we want to buy clothes, if we want to buy basically anything and we're getting our salaries in lira, we will have half or maybe less the original purchasing power when this devaluation happens. Exactly. So basically, we have we have a financial crisis, right? Because banks and BDL appear to be unable to fully satisfy all of the different stakeholders with regard to financial services. We have a we have a sovereign fiscal crisis because the state is literally unable to pay its bills. I, I think the the latest number I heard is that arrears are now up to something like four point nine billion dollars, and the, this goes back. It's related to everything else because, like I said, banks largely aren't putting their money with the uh, with the state anymore. They'd rather have it at BDL because they're getting a higher rate of interest there. And when we say with the state, we mean like buying the treasury bills. That right, the- right. From the Ministry of Finance, which are like a separate thing. So the Ministry of Finance takes care of financing all the state institutions, right? Exactly. So so we've got the financial crisis. We've got like a, a sovereign fiscal crisis. We have a monetary crisis because the lira is under enormous pressure. And with uh, the promulgation of this circular from BDL the other day, it, it was basically tacitly acknowledging there are two different exchange rates here. Mm-hmm. There's the one that we're going to protect for these three industries, and then everybody else, you're on your own. Um, so the the official peg is no longer so official, you know, when you when you when the, the central bank takes this decision. Precisely, it, it, and then in in addition to all of this, we have an economic crisis because I mean, companies can't get the money they need, the credit they need. Sometimes we're hearing a lot of cases of like employees not being paid. There's a lot of talk right now of companies going out of business, uh, even though that's a, that's a normal occurrence, right? Companies go out of business all the time. But right now you're hearing that that has up, uh, ticked up uh, quite significantly. More companies are going out of business these days. Yeah, the um, trade sector is the, the one that's most harmed because yeah. they rely on importing things and selling them. Yeah, and 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 the importers uh, who who can't guarantee supply, and so this is like filtering down to a very a very basic level where people, it's a question whether you will be able to get gas tomorrow or not, right? Like that, yeah. that is that has been a question in people's minds three times in the past three weeks. Will I be able to buy gas? And they've solved it every single time. But this is not something that should happen. You know, this this is yeah. a this is a huge this is we are in an economic crisis now, right? Yeah. Um, and, and on top of all of this, the World Bank 
came out with this GDP projections uh, for 2019, and it's saying, oh, well, we're actually contracting. We, we think that Lebanon's going to, the economy's going to shrink by by a small amount, by by, by 0.2% uh, in 2019. But that's that's a contraction. That that means, probably it means we're in a recession if these numbers are accurate, which, which only confirms and exacerbates, yeah, the, the, like it, all of the other problems, right? Definitely. I think if we can like leave our listeners with like a few conclusions, because this is all we try to make it as simple as possible, but this is still like economic talk. And I, yeah, I, I hope, I hope that we didn't lose people along the way. <laughs> I hope so too. But like, if there are conclusions to this whole story, is that first of all, it's not the problem that we're seeing today is not today's problem. It's an accumulation of years and years of bad policies or at least policies that didn't work in this context and yeah don't don't believe the like this lie that's just like oh we just need to like fix the dollar problem like if dollars started to flow back into the country right now we would still have all these other problems the lack of industrial policy the the the, the failure to create a good tax base all of these other issues i mean go back to 2010 or you know 2008 or something like that was there electricity were recent college graduates staying in the country back then no exactly the, there were a, so many problems back so then it's, it's a problem of the structure of the economy exactly all of these than, things you have to you you don't you need more than just dollars to start coming back in and and we, we will have another episode hopefully soon about like what kind of economic solutions we can talk about in Lebanon. But there are things that are so clear. We need policies that create more jobs. Like this is so urgent. Okay, when we say brain drain, it sounds a bit like poetic, but like what's happening is that people can't find any jobs because there are no good paying jobs in the private sector being created here, especially for people who graduate from universities. Uh, second, we need to reduce the, the deficit we have in terms of how much money is leaving the country compared to how much money is entering it. And the same old policies will not be working anymore. They're not bringing the same thing. So we need to start thinking seriously about how in the next 10 years we can start exporting stuff, investing in sectors that have had ad, a high added value in terms of export in the future. And then we need to figure out what to do about the state's budget because if the revenues are not meeting... like. A, a, cannot make up for the for the spending especially that the spending includes you know a lot of public debt service then maybe we should think about increasing the revenues maybe we should think about creative ways of taxing the rich maybe i don't know things that are very have not been tried historically like actual tax rates that you know that are fair and progressive but also reducing like spending on specific things can be a possibility although i don't see it as a major like possibility it's talked about in terms of like austerity and austerity and fiscal consolidation everyone's talking about that as if this is the solution and all of these reports by the rating agencies etc fiscal consolidation will fix this but it's what we really need is to reduce this huge amount of money we're paying on public debt service that is absolutely ridiculous. And we had a, an episode specifically about the budget and we talked about how the numbers just, the, the only way to make sense out of this is that we have to start getting some of this money we're paying for on public service out of the equation because otherwise we're going to be taking things uh, money out of investment infrastructure, which we did this year and the year before, out of education, out of healthcare, environment uh, ministry, financial regulations, things that actually build a country and like maintain it. 
So in order to reduce this public debt service, and we talked about this before, one of the things that are being talked have been talked about since last year very seriously is the government doing some kind of a restru- debt restructuring deal where the banks would buy, you know, uh, uh, treasury bills for very low interest rates. So exchange their old uh, bills for lower interest rates ones, which basically means that they're letting go of some of the payment, some of the interest that we owe them. Uh, and this is one of the ways because they have been benefiting from all of this economic economic policies and this economic model for the last I don't know how many years. So they might it might be a good idea to for them to share the responsibility of fixing the situation. Right. Yeah. I I, I think when you talk about this, like you're going to have to talk about like short term immediate solutions and then like sort of longer term things. And I, I think like the longer term fixes are the ones that you really have to keep your your eye on, and they have to be fixes to what we were talking about today. These like very large structural imbalances that just aren't sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is not something that you change overnight, unfortunately. All right. I guess uh, that's a good note to end this episode on. Hope this was useful and not full of jargon. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.